0: This weekend I was fortunate enough to attend my free yearly safeguarding training in Canterbury Diocese where I hold permission to officiate. This is known as 3C training and we did it in a six-hour block alongside some rather hurried safe recruiting training as well. Most of it was good. There was one slightly cringy moment when the trainer didn't seem to understand the difference between the words paedophile and sexual abuser of children – The former refers to someone's sexual attractions, the second refers to people who sexually abuse children, some of whom may not actually be paedophiles. I really didn't want to discuss that the correct legal terms were actually indecent images or prohibited image, not child porn, and that the law is complex and rather grey at the very soft end. One picture can be indecent in one context and not in the other, for example say, the same picture of a child in a bath is viewed rather differently by the law, depending on the context of the production of the image and the viewing of it. It would be nice if the people in our diocese who are responsible for advising us on these matters actually knew this in some detail. But then there are plenty of bishops who still casually use the word paedophile to refer to someone who sexually abuses a child, and in doing so creates a complete pastorally insensitive environment for anyone who struggles with sexual attraction to children but has no intention of ever committing child sexual abuse. But I digress. The real reason why I want to talk to you today is one part of the training that I strongly objected to. In the afternoon, as we talked about confidentiality, the trainer read out the following statement, which is section 14.7 of the Canterbury Diocese Safeguarding Manual. It reads, and I quote, Any priest hearing a confession, regularly or otherwise, must say prior to hearing that confession the following statement of confidentiality and safeguarding. If you touch on any matter in your confession that raises a concern about the well-being or safeguarding of another person or yourself, I am duty-bound to pass that information on to the relevant agencies, which mean that I am unable to keep such information confidential. Close quote. And that sounds all hunky-dory, except for three things. First, it directly contradicts the confidentiality instructions given in the same safeguarding manual. Second, it is pastorally destructive to the purpose of transforming penitential encounters. And third, and probably most importantly, it's illegal. So let's unpack that. First, it directly contradicts the confidentiality instructions given in the same training. We were told that we should not break confidences so that if an adult came and told us, for example, that they were in an abusive relationship, that rather than running to the police, we should instead seek to empower the individual to make their own choices as to how to resolve the situation. In this case, we should not break confidentiality. However, if the same lady comes to me for confession and I read out what the bishop instructs me, I quote, I am duty bound to pass that information on, close quote, now I will not hold her information as confidential. Why would the lady come to me for confession if she knows that I will tell all her secrets to people she doesn't want me to and indeed that I am instructed to betray her confidence? And you might argue that I'm simply being slightly um, convoluted in my reading here of the instruction. But the instruction is very clear. The instruction is that I will pass on the information to the relevant authorities. Not that I will consider doing so, but that I will. Again, in the training we use the Mr and Mrs Jones case study from the National Safeguarding Team, which has Mrs Jones exhibiting some bruising on her wrist. Was that, I asked, enough to suspect assault, which is an indictable offence, and therefore for me to inform the police? No, I was told. By itself, that wasn't sufficient. But the safeguarding aid memoir issued by my diocese has as the number one form of abuse on the recognised page, the title, physical, bruises, cuts, etc. And then at the bottom of the page, in bold capitals, all must be taken seriously and acted on. So which is it? In our list of reasons why the bishop's instruction is wrong, the second reason I named was that it is pastorally destructive to the purpose of transforming penitential encounters. Bishop Philip North, a man who is in need of a diocese of his own, if ever there was one, has written a great article in this week's Church Times on the training of clergy in auricular confession. In it, he points out the obvious truth of the confessional when he writes the following words, it would be a terrible tragedy if a sacramental gift were lost that would be of benefit not primarily to the criminal but to the victim. That is because, in my experience, a group of people who often make use of the confessional are survivors of trauma or abuse. While the confessional may not, on the surface, be the right place for someone who has been the victim of the sins of another, he continues, its absolute confidentiality inspires a confidence that makes it a safe place where buried memories can be brought to the fore, perhaps even the place where a journey to healing can begin. Close quote. The bishop hits the nail on the head. It is the testimony of many across the theological spectrum that the confessional is a place, as Bishop Philip so perfectly puts it elsewhere in his piece, where, quote, sin can be released and where fears can be named in absolute confidence, close quote. Teenagers have come out in the confessional. Battered wives have found truth in the confessional. Men who have carried guilt for over half a century have found release in the confessional. If people enter auricular confession in the knowledge that even the merest hint of a crime that skirted around the issues of safeguarding would be reported, how likely are they to share in the first place? As one priest, who I greatly respect, said to me this week, And they have a habit of seeking the Sacrament of Reconciliation. They said to me about this disclaimer that the bishop in Canterbury instructs, that it is, quote, very unhelpful pastorally. You know, some of us work with men and women who struggle with sexual desires that, if known, would lead them to be ostracised by many. But they seek, despite that, to live a holy life. If I hear the confession of someone who has viewed some indecent material five years ago and he has felt guilty ever since, do I really help his sanctification by dobbing him into the old bill when he's actually come to me to confess sin, hear absolution and be strengthened to continue to resist the temptations he recognises as fallen and that his regenerate self abhors? The bishop's instruction here rewrites Romans 7 to read who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death thanks be to god who delivers me through jesus christ our lord but then betrays my confidence third and most seriously the bishop's instruction must be rejected because it is illegal Canon 113 of the 1603 canons of the Church of England, when discussing the interaction of church authorities and the state for the maintenance of order, states the following. Quote, Provided always that if any man confess his secret and hidden sins to the minister for the unburdening of his conscience and to receive spiritual consolation and ease of mind from him, we do not in any way bind the said minister by this our constitution, but we do straightly charge and admonish him that he do not at any time reveal and make known to any person whatsoever any crime or offence so committed to his trust and secrecy under pain of irregularity. Close quote. As the website of the Diocese of London so helpfully points out, this is simply a restatement of the principle laid down in Canon 21 of the First Lateran Council of 1215, and has itself not been rescinded by the Roman Catholic Church either since that day. It was reaffirmed in the Church of England by the Convocation of Canterbury in 1959 who said, I quote, This house reaffirms as an essential principle of church doctrine that if any person confesses his secret and hidden sin to a priest for the unburdening of his conscience and to receive spiritual consolation and absolution from him, such priest is strictly charged that he do not at any time reveal or make known to any person whatsoever anything any sin so committed to his trust and secrecy Close quote. as robin ward the principal of st stephen's house and general good egg points out also in this week's church times this has been reaffirmed by the general synod most recently in 2015 when they adopted again a revision to the house of bishops policy document on safeguarding children now, it's fair to point out, as the Canterbury Diocesan Safeguarding Handbook does, that the official statement of the House of Bishops on this, on, on child safe safeguarding, does say in regard to potential privilege that, quote, there is some doubt as to whether this absolute privilege is consistent with the civil law, close quote. However, Canterbury Diocese doesn't point us, but London Diocese does, point us to the fact that there is zero case law in this area. For almost a thousand years, not one English priest, Anglican or Roman Catholic, has been prosecuted for withholding information told in the confessional. All opinions as to whether the absolute privilege of the confessional would hold up in court are simply that, opinions. The explanation given by the Diocese of Canterbury, when questioned on this back in the summer, was as follows. the guidance has not abolished the seal of the confessional. Rather, it is intended to advise the penitent not to, involve, to divulge in confession something which would legally compromise the position of the priest and therefore require that priest to choose between their responsibility to protect someone from harm and the usual requirement of confidentiality. Close quote. This is a ridiculous statement. First, canon law already states incredibly clearly that the compromise between quote responsibility to protect someone from harm and the usual requirement of confidentiality close quotes does not exist in this circumstance the canon from 1603 clearly indicates beyond any reasonable doubt that confidentiality trumps everything in the confessional indeed we are instructed by law to keep what is in the, conf- in the confessional confidential. I go as far as to advise fellow priests who, who ask me that my advice on, on this, in terms of should they hear a confession, if they're worried that they would feel that they had to, to uh, reveal to the relevant authorities something that was told, I go as far to advise them to not hear confessions at all, one bit, because they might feel that they have to break the law. And the canon from 1603 is the law. Second, since when was the church advising someone not to confess a sin? What an absurd notion. The idea that we should say to people, do not confess explicit sins. It's worth pointing out as well that the official guidelines given to us as priests do not include this explanation of the instruction. So we are left with the reasonable interpretation that we are quite simply being commanded to break the law of the land. For canon law is English law, a law that is laid out for us only a section earlier in the same Canterbury Diocesan Safeguarding Documents. And that, brothers and sisters, is why I had to clearly state in the presence of one of the Diocesan Safeguarding advisers, that I would not abide by this instruction. My oath of obedience to the Bishop of Dover is quote, in all things lawful and honest, close quote, and I think it is clear that this instruction is unlawful in that it commands me to break the law, and dishonest in that it asks me to compromise my sacramental role as a confessor by dissuading the penitent to find reconciliation. Perhaps that's the reason that Canterbury Diocese no longer trains its curates in the ministry of reconciliation. One final thought. Bishop Trevor retires in May next year. Canterbury Diocese has a peculiar arrangement whereby Justin the Archbishop is officially the ordinary but the Suffragan Bishop of Dover actually acts as the ordinary. The day that Trevor Wilmot ceases to be Bishop of Dover this safeguarding policy becomes Justin Welby's policy. Can you imagine that? The Archbishop of Canterbury, the worldwide leader of the Anglican C- Communion, Primus Interparus, the man all the primates look to for guidance and leadership, will be formally instructing the clergy of his diocese to not only break canon law, but also to discourage penitents from confessing their sins. I really wonder what the leaders of the rest of the church will think about that, especially those who take the sacrament incredibly seriously. I'm Peter Old, and this is Radio Free Canterbury. This speech is my recital. I think it's very vital. To rock around, that's right, on time. It's tricky, <laughs> it's so Here we go! It's tricky, to rock around, to, to rock around, that's right, on time, it's tricky. It's tricky, 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 tricky. tricky.